Today we begin our 10-week journey through the book of Daniel. Now, how are we going to treat this book? We've got four options. We can moralize the book, cipher the book, neglect the book, or examine the book. Uh, we're going to begin with what does it look like if we choose option one, if we moralize the book. See, we could look at Daniel as purely moralistic. We could look at it principally to find do's and don'ts, pick up some little moral lessons here or there. And this is very easy to do because the first six chapters give us six self-contained hero stories. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, put on their capes and they fly in to save the day. And the temptation is to make them the object of our worship. Daniel becomes the hero. And when you teach the Bible, I want to encourage you to make the hero of the story the hero of the Bible. Ultimately, Daniel isn't the one who swoops in and saves the day. He points us to another. Here's what moralistic sermons from Daniel look like. Daniel's actions are presented as normative for all time. And if we wish to be as successful as Daniel, then we need to do what Daniel did. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. See, I could easily lift a principle from the text and then drop it in the pew and reduce the Old Testament stories to an imitation of godly examples and the avoidance of ungodly examples. Be like the heroes. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't be like the vil villains. Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. See, in an attempt to produce something holy, I could actually produce something sinful, a sermon, a Christless sermon. Whenever you approach any text, especially this one, you must ask this question. How does Jesus make this text possible? Unable to preach Christ and Him crucified, many speakers preach humanity and it improved. God's not saying through Daniel, come unto me, all you who need self-improvement, and I will give you steps. The primary purpose of Daniel is not to teach us how to behave, but rather to point us to God. And besides all of that, to make Daniel an example of one who fulfills God's moral imperatives, and because of that, he earns God's blessings, is essentially an unchristian message. And some of you, you may have your mind blown right now because that's all you've ever heard from Old Testament stories. But we do not want to moralize the story. Nor do we want to cipher the story. View it like a secret code manual. See, the first six chapters of the book are historical. It's hero narratives. The next six chapters are apocalyptic. It's visions of end times. And some have used the last six chapters of Daniel to predict the end of the world. For example, in the 1840s, William Miller understood the 2,300 days in Daniel 8 as 2,300 years and concluded that Christ would return between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. Even some solid teachers have fallen prey to developing some wild end-time views from these chapters, holding prophecy conferences and handing out timelines. It's the result of a hyperactive eschatological imagination. So we want to avoid moralizing the book, and we want to avoid ciphering the book, and we also want to avoid neglecting the book or neglecting the hard parts of the book. Doing a verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Daniel isn't popular. 
even among some of my favorite expositors. Charles Spurgeon, a.k.a. the Spurge, he didn't do it. Neither did Martin Lloyd-Jones or Tony Morita, whom I call this Christ-centered ninja. Stephen Davey did the first six chapters, and then he bowed out. J.D. Greer, Matt Chandler, John Piper, Al Mohler, Haddon Robinson, David Platt only did selected treatments. Tim Keller, New York City's Yoda, he touched five chapters. That's it. Now, they were, they were great when he did. Mark Dever only has two sermons for the whole book. Now, my intent in pointing this out is certainly not ill will. I've learned so much from these men. It's just to illustrate that even our camp neglects this book. We want to do number four. We want to examine the book with Christ-centered lenses. You cannot find a Christless text in the Bible. Daniel does not remain silent concerning Christ. Now, we're not going to do what the Spurge was often guilty of, and that's put Christ in by using allegory. I'm not interested in putting Christ behind every rock or in every loaf of bread. I'm not going to put Christ where he is not. I'm not going to read him into the text. We always honor the author's intent. I simply want to point out to you that when Jesus preached, in fact, there's a verse, Luke 24, 27, it says, when Jesus preached, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, all the prophets, that's the rest of the Old Testament. You often see the Old Testament summarized like that in the New Testament. When Jesus preached, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That means, one, Jesus preached through Daniel. Two, Jesus preached himself from Daniel. Now, how might he have done that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I think I know. There's, a, there's an unfolding drama of redemption. One story, one book, and Daniel fits somewhere in that unfolding story. The story of Daniel is a window into the exile, which is an important event in redemptive history. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk through the narrative without any preaching points. Preaching points tend to, to break up a narrative, break up a story. So I'm not going to have any preaching points. But once I finish the exposition, I'm going to leave you with several, and I emphasize the word, several applications from the text. So now we know where we're going. Let's go. Our story begins in a Jerusalem home. More specifically, a living room. Four mothers sitting around laughing while each holds a cooing baby boy in her arms. All four boys were born within weeks of one another. One mother says, My husband and I wanted to name our son Hananiah because it means Yahweh is gracious. I lost our last boy during the delivery. Now I'll hold Hananiah. God has been gracious to us. Another mother says, we named our son Mishael, which means who is what God is. We, we wanted to reflect in his name that he was made in the image of God. The third mother, we named our son Azariah, which means Yahweh is my helper. God has sustained us and helped us in this trying year. The fourth mother looks into the eyes of her boy and whispers, Daniel, God is my judge. 
Every time one of these mothers called their son's names, it was a reminder that they belonged to Yahweh. That they are his children and he will deliver them. Their name was their identity and it was forever tied to God. These parents put the word of God not only in their son's names, but in their son's hearts. As they grew up, the boys played hard and the parents discipled hard. All four boys were stout, built like a horse. They had good genes. In fact, royal genes. Skill oozing out of every pore. They aced every class and lettered in every sport. Always voted the most likely to succeed. They were athletic, gifted in sports. They were brilliant, gifted in the books. They were handsome, gifted in physical features. They were the best and the brightest that Israeli education and genes had to offer. And they're all now in their early teens. Now let's zoom out from this home and let's see what's happening around the world. There are two world superpowers, Egypt and Babylon. While the boys were killing it in the classroom, Babylon was killing it in the war against Egypt. Shortly after the victory, Babylon's king, Nebuchadnezzar, died. And his 28-year-old son, Nebuchadnezzar, rushed home to claim his throne. Nebuchadnezzar was a genius. He was an educator. He was an architect. He was a great military mind. He had an, he had an expansion plan. He wanted to take over as much of the Middle Eastern world as he could. And Jerusalem was one of the first targets. Those four mothers are still meeting in that Jerusalem home in the living room and they're about to wish their boys were never born. Nebuchadnezzar delivers a terror strike, an invasion on the city of God. Verse 1 reads like breaking news around the world. Here, live at the scene, Yahweh's people wiped out in Jerusalem. Israel's 36-year-old ruler Jehoiakim shackled with fetters. Verse 2 reveals that the Babylonians raided God's temple and brought the holy vessels back to display in their temple of Marduk. This was their way of mocking God. Plundering God's temple and bringing the bounty 900 miles back to the heathen temple was a sign that their gods are superior to Yahweh. Every nation understood this to mean that the Jewish God was defeated. Jehovah was no match for Nebuchadnezzar. On top of bringing back God's golden vessels, Nebuchadnezzar also brought back some of God's human vessels. Verse 3 tells us that he singled out some of the sons of the nobles and leaders from the land of Israel. He wanted the boys without blemish and with a good appearance. In other words... Nebuchadnezzar only wanted flawless physical specimens, those with impeccable bodies, handsome boys. He didn't want good-looking guys who couldn't spell. <laughs> they had to be bright, too. They also had to be, according to verse 4, competent to stand in the king's palace. Minds that understood structure and leadership, that possessed the ability to gather data and correlate facts to come to the right conclusion. They needed a high IQ, test scores, 
and a high EQ, social ability. Most Bible historians agree that somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 young teenage boys were kidnapped, forced to walk 900 miles, hungry, exhausted, and fearful. These young men were victims of human trafficking. Among that number, dragged off in chains to a foreign land was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their mother screaming, don't take my boy. And their son screaming, don't take me away from home. The last words these boys will ever hear from their mothers is, don't take God is gracious from me. Don't take Yahweh is my helper from me. The sad part of this whole event is that these boys actually lived up to their name, but God didn't. These boys received no help or grace. They will never again see home. Nebuchadnezzar had a very intentional and strategic plan to brainwash these boys. The first step, you may want to write it down, is isolation. They are isolated from their mother and their father, their language, from weekly worship, from sacrificial system, from the reading and the hearing of the law of God, from the prophetic testimony of Israel's prophets. Now, this would have been traumatic and a shock to their system, throwing their world into a tailspin, making them far more susceptible to new ideas they would encounter. Davy pointed out that it's difficult for us to imagine the impact of moving from the land of Judah and their boyhood home to the greatest, wealthiest, most beautiful place known in the ancient world. The hanging gardens around the terraced palace grounds had been one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Highly trained staff tended the gardens 24 hours a day. The main entrance of the capital city was also one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was called the Gate of Ishtar. And that very gate has been excavated and rebuilt. And it's in the Berlin Museum. Though nearly 3,000 years old, these excavations still stun the imagination and reflect the beauty and the wealth and the power of this ancient kingdom. In fact, these four boys would have walked through this very Gate of Ishtar. No doubt hearts racing, perhaps hiding behind their eyes would have been thoughts of utter amazement and at the same time, total hopelessness. These captives no doubt would have paused by the gate so that the inscription written in hieroglyphics could be read to them. The inscription was installed by Nebuchadnezzar himself and translated into English, it reads this. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the pious prince appointed by the will of Marduk. I am the untiring governor, the wise, the humble, the firstborn of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, am I. This wasn't Kansas anymore. This wasn't little Jerusalem. This was Babylon the Great. Welcome to your new world. As soon as they step foot in the king's palace, they are told to drop their pants. Because they're going to be castrated. First isolation, then indoctrination. Notice verse 4. Teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. 
they are immediately enrolled in the Royal University of Babylon. Ashpenaz is the university president as well as their personal tutor. And they are being trained for government service for the purpose of managing other fellow POWs, prisoners of war. See, it was impossible to take the whole nation of Israel captive. So Nebuchadnezzar, he just scooped out the cream of the crop. And this was intended to strip the nation of its leaders, robbing Israel of its best minds for a new generation. This is the first of three sieges. The first siege with Daniel and his three friends was about 60 boys in total. The second siege was 10,000 captives, including Ezekiel. The third siege, that's when they took the poor and the fringes of society. It took around 20 years for the complete destruction and fall of Jerusalem. So this three-year crash course was to train Daniel and his three friends to lead the next group of POWs coming in. Daniel and his three friends were not given slave duty, but were given scholarships. The Royal University of Babylon would give them a first-class secular education. They will study religion. Part of the curriculum emphasized the greatness of Marduk and the importance of the, the pantheon of gods. They desired to deconvert these backward monotheistic teens into polytheistic believers. So they studied religion. They also studied mythologies. Up until now, these boys had been taught creationism from the inspired record of Genesis. But that's all about to change. They're introduced to mythologies of creation and the flood. Babylon wanted to change their beliefs, change their convictions, change their values. Myths and legends would take the place of scripture as the source of their wisdom and worldview. Religion, mythologies, it also study magic, how to read stars, how to read palms, how to read sheep livers, and how to read bizarre births. The goal was to assimilate the POWs completely into the culture. Think like the Babylonians, behave like the Babylonians, believe like the Babylonians. It was a systematic indoctrination. First isolation, then indoctrination, then confusion. As part of the psychological and spiritual reprogramming, Nebuchadnezzar changed all of their names. Now, changing names today is not a big deal. But in the ancient world, name changing was huge. Your name was your identity. It spoke to who you are at your core. And what he gave them was more than a satanic name tag. The exact meaning of these Babylonian names are not exactly certain, but it's, it's close to this. Daniel, his name meant God is my judge, was changed to Belshazzar. Bel, which is another god, protects life. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious, was changed to Shadrach, the command of Aku. Mishal, who is what God is, was changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is, made in the image of the god Aku. Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, Abednego, servant of Nebo. By the way, if you ever struggle to pronounce names in the Bible, just read it fast and confidently. And nobody will ever know the difference. Kids, if you can't remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you might want to call them my shack, your shack, and a bungalow. They taught me this in my doctoral program. Every time they heard their names called, it was intended to remind them, your God is as good as dead. 
You don't serve Yahweh anymore. Your God failed you. First isolation, then indoctrination, then confusion, now compromise. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now just imagine this buffet line in the university mess hall. For these hungry teens, it's their first ever buffet. And man, they've never seen so much food in their lives. Pork products and shellfish and shrimp. One of the king's officials saw them looking at the shrimp and he said, You know, shrimp is the fruit of the sea. You can barbecue it, boil it, broil it, bake it, saute it. You know, there's shrimp kebabs, shrimp krill, shrimp gumbo, pan fried, deep fried, stir fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger, shrimp sandwich. And that's about all. Can't see that conversation in the English. It's strictly in the Hebrew. Forrest Gump Hebrew. Apparently, the other 56 teens were doing what teens do, and they were throwing down at the table. Chicken bones flying everywhere, shrimp, shrimp tails everywhere. Hey, Daniel, you've got you to gotta taste this honey baked ham. But verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, personally, I wouldn't want to change this diet. Uh, I, I would want to eat the food that's on the king's table. But Daniel and his three friends, they're sitting there with their stomachs growling in protest. Up until this point from these three, we have recorded no resistance. Name me whatever you want. Teach me whatever you want. But I will not eat shrimp. It's just a, it's a bit of a weird place to take a stand. Now some have said that they refused to eat because the king's buffet violated the Jewish dietary laws. In fact, the word in the verse defiled denotes religious defilement. So maybe the animals were not slaughtered properly. The blood wasn't drained properly. Uh, not eating kosher food made an Israelite unclean. Others have added that the food was offered to idols before it was placed on the buffet. So they couldn't possibly eat food offered to the god Marduk. Others believe Daniel simply wanted to reject a certain lifestyle. Nebuchadnezzar enticed them with his delicacies and privileges of their new life. See, these buffets were a, a major social event in the ancient times. The lavishness, the drunkenness, and the, and the rest of the wildness that went with such events would be against the simple purity that the Word of God demanded. Daniel and his friends resisted what Heinrich Bullinger called the king's sweet poison. For whatever reason, Daniel takes a stand. This is against my God. I like the way he says it. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, you know, the seasoning in my stomach just don't mix well. I've had an ulcer. I've had it since I was nine years old. And um, I just can't do that. Uh, nor does he say, I'm like Kyle, and, and I have the palate of a five-year-old. Could you just give me mac and cheese? No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, it will defile me before Yahweh. The university president, Ashpenaz, has tre tremendous admiration for these young men, and He's not willing to change the diet for them. He can't have four starving teens on his hand. The king will have his head. The fearful president refuses Daniel's request, so Daniel goes to a lower-ranking guard, and he says in verse 12, 
something like this. Why don't you just give us veggies instead of the shrimp buffet and water instead of the king's wine? And why don't you do this for 10 days and see if we fare better than the other 56 university students? Now, you vegans, you, here, here you go. You're going to like this. They eat nothing but Brussels sprouts and asparagus and lima beans. Lima beans are sawdust covered in a thin layer of cardboard. It's nasty. So day one goes by, then day two goes by, and after the third day, they're probably saying to Daniel, what were you thinking? Why not 10 days of pizza, 10 days of chicken wings, 10 days of Krispy Kreme donuts? Notice verse 15, and at the end of 10 days... It was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Notice that word, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now some vegans point to this diet and say, look, it's God's way of eating. There's even a, a Christian weight loss program called the Daniel Plan. If you want to be a vegan, fine. If you want to do the Daniel Plan, fine. But don't think that it's anything intrinsically spiritual about eating only vegetables. I keep calling it a diet plan, but... You notice they didn't lose weight. All the boys gained weight. That's my kind of diet. John Calvin pointed out that the diet of veggies was actually a temporary regimen for them. You find it later in the book that Daniel didn't live by that. See, this is not about proving that the Jewish diet is better, but proving that the Jewish God is better. And by the way, a, a little note here on the word vegetables. It's the Hebrew word zara, which means common food. It was the food they gave to the poor. No meat, no delicacies. It was the poor man's food. We don't need the king's food. Give us the poor man's food. Verse 16. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. We see in verse 18 that graduation day arrives. And at the end of the three years, the king personally interviews the 60 students. Daniel and his three friends stand out. They graduated summa cum laude. The king puts the four of them in his leadership cabinet. Now that's the exposition. You know, sometimes I'll tell you, I have nine applications. But then I'll say, I'm just kidding, I only have two applications. And, but once you're prepared for nine, two doesn't seem that many. Well, today I have nine applications. And I'm not kidding, okay? It's nine applications. If you're a note taker, welcome to Carpal Tunnel. <laughs> Application number one. Train your children to face Babylon's indoctrination. You must prepare your children to face a toxic culture. Every classroom from elementary to college will be against their faith. Now this doesn't mean that they can't get a degree from a secular university. It doesn't mean they can't attend public schools. It does mean you better teach them how to swallow the cherry and spit out the seed. Wherever they are educated, they need to know and understand the contemporary language and literature of the Babylonians and to be armed with biblical discernment to see its flaws. Their minds will be attacked, which is why we do expository preaching here because it goes after the heart and the mind. Their minds will be attacked. And fathers need to say, my children will hear me read the Bible. Not just their teacher, not just their pastor, but they're going to hear the words of God coming off of my lips. One of the ladies in our church says, Raise Christ followers, not merely church attenders. The biggest responsibility for you as a parent is to disciple your children with deep theology and prepare them for Babylon. Big youth groups are not what your child needs. You have to open your eyes and see what that has produced in our country. 
with, with their light shows and their imitation Maroon 5 bands and their skiing trips, they don't produce disciples. They produce victims. Your child doesn't need a church program. They need you sitting Indian style before them with an open Bible. Application number two. Don't forget you sit in class every day at the Royal University of Babylon. Our feet are forcibly planted in the soil of an anti-God, anti-Christian culture. And it is absolutely imperative that we set our minds on serving God. Daniel 1 provides for us a picture of the world's strategy of spiritual reprogramming. So don't think you're beyond brainwashing. You're surrounded by pagan influences and propaganda. My, my daughter at the table um, this week, she said, Dad, let's talk about propaganda. I'm like, I don't, I don't think I know how to spell propaganda. Sweetie, I need to talk about this. Your consumption of media will wear on you if you allow it. But it is possible. Friends, it is possible to live a faithful Christ-centered life exiled in Babylon. Be prepared for the challenges that our non-Christian culture will throw at you. Application number three. This narrative is bigger than Babylon or Israel. Babylon in the Bible is the personification of evil. Revelation 17.5 calls Babylon the mother of prostitutes. One guy in our church said Babylon is the devil's den. You know Babylon's a bad place when the Rolling Stones name a record after it. It's always been this way. Notice verse 3. The captives were brought to the land of Shinar. We know the very first mention of this land traces all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. To the story of the Tower of Babel where people built in defiance against God. This land has always been in defiance against God. And you see what the author is doing here. He's reminding you that this is not just a battle between the nation of Israel and the nation of Babylon. It's a battle between Yahweh and Satan. It actually goes back further than Genesis 3. It goes all the way back to Genesis 11. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This represents two armies to which men and women belong. They symbolize two loyalties which scripture speaks about in other forms. Two gates, two ways, two masters. This story isn't about Daniel and his awesomeness. It's connected to an ongoing story. God will preserve a people, Israel, because he is sending one from Israel. One who will end the battle once and for all. One who will make the dietary laws obsolete. He'll make shrimp clean. One who will give us meat. Meat to eat that Babylon knows not of. God will preserve Israel through all the sieges because Jesus Christ will come from Israel. Application number four. What if unlike Daniel, you fail to say no to sin? You know, every time I hear someone preach the th David and Goliath story like, you need to defeat your giants. And every time I hear someone preach Daniel like, you need to dare to be a Daniel. I, I, I puke in my mouth. I know that's not a pleasant visual for you, but someone with a brain has to call out these pastors. I made a mistake this week of uh, listening to one of the largest churches in our country preach Daniel chapter 1. And he says, with fog machines going crazy in the background, he says, Daniel 1 tells you to say no to sin. 
point of Daniel 1 is for you to say no to sin. And I disagree. That is not the point. Daniel helps you when you say yes to sin. When you said yes to sex outside of marriage. When you said yes to the homosexual lifestyle. When you said yes to gossiping about your boss at work. When you said yes to lying because it made you look better. When you said yes to bottle after bottle after bottle after bottle. When you were the other 56 exiles not doing what was holy. How does Daniel help me when I'm not one of the four? The focus throughout this chapter is not simply the faithfulness of these four men to their God, but the faithfulness of their God to them. God gave them favor twice in the text. The good news of the gospel is not that God is faithful to those who are faithful to Him. Our salvation rests not in our ability to remain undefiled by the world, but rather on the pure and undefiled work of Jesus Christ. You're impressed with Daniel, friend. Let, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. Daniel said no to sin, and Jesus said yes to your sin. Daniel would not be defiled by sin. Jesus came to earth to be defiled by your nasty sin. This story is bigger than Israel and Babylon. Application number five. If your unpleasant life never gets better, is Christ still enough? If your present life Unpleasant life never gets better. Is Christ still enough? Some of you have had to deal with some unimaginable, unpleasant things. Your spouse cheated on you. You were fired from your job, no fault of your own. Just your whole life, you don't have a winsome personality. Your entire life, everyone's just overlooked you. You battle a disease right now that's, as I speak, is ravaging your body. You go through bouts of depression that are deep and long. Unpleasant things have caused you to feel abandoned by God. Daniel and his three friends didn't deserve what happened to them. Horrible things happen to innocent people. And I want to encourage you to take a different view of your current trial. Don't view it like an isolated nightmare. But view it as God's punctuation mark in your biography of grace. He was touched there, and he still served me. This came into her life, and she still praises me. You should be willing to be tried, to have your faith tested. You do not want to be carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease. You don't get that privilege. No, God has chosen for you flowery beds of pain. You do not need to always be protected from everybody's sneer and frown. You need to face it and view it as God's gift to you. Resolving to follow God means that you choose to follow Him without any guarantees. Do not forget where the story of Daniel leads. These captive, from these captive people will come a generation of suffering people who will be relieved by a suffering Savior. Application 6. Your sin has consequences. Daniel and his friends were uprooted and replanted in the harsh, wicked soil of the Babylonian Empire. And, and this is where the surprise comes in. It was God's doing. 
It was God's plan. Verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Why would God do this? Why? At the beginning of Israel's history as a nation, God made a covenant with them. A covenant that included blessings for obedience and then curses for disobedience. Leviticus 26. And Israel lived 490 years of disobedience. Could you imagine saying no to your kids for 490 years? 490 years. I've got a spoon. No, I've got a spoon. Babylon is God's wooden spoon. You want to go after other gods? I can arrange that. In fact, the entire book of Daniel was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 39. Notice these words, 100 years before Daniel 1, 100 years, actually it's 120, 100 years before Nebuchadnezzar sieged the city, Isaiah wrote these words. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs, in other words, castrated, in the palace of the king of Babylon. God evidently would rather have his people living in captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in a holy land. My, my non-Christian friends, if you do not repent of your sin and run to Jesus Christ for salvation, you will eternally face worse than what Daniel faced in Babylon. You will have the wrath of God poured on you for all eternity. Friend, repent and come to this suffering Savior. Application number seven. Sometimes it may look like God isn't in control. If they had cable then, pretty positive they didn't. They had newspapers, they didn't have newspapers either. Here was the breaking news of the day, okay? This was on the front page news. What is the front page breaking news? Nebuchadnezzar takes over the world. Just goes to show that headline news is not always heaven's news. God is in control of who is in control. Friends, it's an election year. And my goal is not to pull you left or to pull you right, but to pull you up. Notice verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar came. So we've got Nebuchadnezzar active in history. Notice verse 2. God gave. So we have God active in history. Nebuchadnezzar active in history. God active in history. A modern historian would say that Judah fell because it was overpowered by the most powerful nation on earth. A Babylonian priest would have said that the powerful gods of Babylon simply overpowered the God of Israel. But our text gives us a totally different perspective. And, and friends, we need this perspective. The Lord allowed this nation and this king to mock him. You see, the exile is not proof that God's plan has failed. It's proof that God's plan will be fulfilled. The exile is not an accident. It's the work and will of God. He is sovereign over every hard-hearted king and every broken-hearted event. He reigns over all.
Application number eight. It's healthy. It's healthy for you to feel homesick. Daniel was taken into captivity in his early teens. And then notice verse 21. This, like, I, I thought about skipping it, but it's so, so rich here. Notice in verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's nearly 70 years later. We're introduced to young teen Daniel at the beginning. And then at the end, Daniel is now in his 80s. And this provides some realism for us. Daniel never went home. What was nearest and dearest to his heart, home, he never again experienced. People in the States will often give me a hard time for having never seen certain movies. Like Star Wars. I've never seen any of the Star Wars. And The Wizard of Oz. Now I do, however, know one line in the movie where Dorothy realizes she's not in Kansas anymore. And she says, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. A freshman in college knows this. A foreign exchange student knows this. Kids at summer camp know this. And whether you live in Tennessee or Kentucky, you should know this. God built into you a spiritual ache. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. You should just feel it living in this world. Times when you simply feel out of place. And he thought something was wrong with you because you felt out of place. But something is right with you because there are times when you just feel out of place. You are an alien and a stranger here. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We are like the Jews in Babylon. Babylon has given us much. Nice cars, nice house, food, clothes, job. But just like the temple vessels would inevitably make their way back home, Ezra 1, just like the exile people would eventually make their way back home, Ezra 2, so too will we. God will not abandon his home. He's coming for us exiles and he's bringing us to our forever home. Michael Buble has a song entitled Home. It goes like this. Another summer day has come and gone away in Paris and Rome, but I want to go home. May be surrounded by a million people. I still feel all alone. Just want to go home. What do you do while you wait to go home? This week I was thinking about St. Patrick's Day because it's coming up. Have you ever noticed that St. Patrick's Day is celebrated with more enthusiasm in Boston, Massachusetts than it is in Dublin, Ireland? Have you ever noticed that 4th of July in our country means more to Americans abroad than it does to us at home? We are still in exile east of Eden. How do we wait? Friends, this is how we wait. As citizens of heaven, we need to take every opportunity to gather with our fellow exiles so that we can remind one another of home. That's why you need this gathered body every week. We come here and we talk about home. Last application, application nine. Let's not forget the ultimate exile. 500 years after Jewish Daniel was exiled in Babylon, there came another Jewish exile. He willingly chose to exile himself to a fallen world. 
Unlike Daniel, this exile went to Babylon willingly. Jesus on the cross was exiled from the presence of the Father so that you could be brought close. Because the ultimate exile longed for home, us exiles will one day be brought home. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.